Let us pray. Holy God, as we begin this season of Lent, guide us, send your spirit to light a path for us, to lead us. We go all the way to Jerusalem in this season, and we long for the days of Easter, but we have such a journey ahead of us. So guide us now, in Christ's name, amen. So we're going to start off by reading from Genesis. We have part of the story of Noah and the flood. I was tempted to read the whole thing, because I knew you would like that. But I thought, no. There are other things. So we're in Genesis 9, um, beginning in the 8th verse. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your offspring to come, and with every living thing that is with you, birds, cattle, every wild beast as well, all that have come out of the ark, every living thing on the earth. And I will maintain my covenant with you, and never again shall all life, all flesh, be cut off by waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God further said, This is the sign that I set for the covenant between me and you, and every creature with you for all ages to come. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature among all flesh, so that the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all life. When the bow is in the clouds, I will set it, see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures, all flesh that is on the earth. And that, God said to Noah, shall be the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And then we are going to read from the Gospel of Mark. Please rise. We are reading Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. 
Well, the Noah story is the prominent scripture for this week at the beginning of Advent, and because of that, I've been thinking a lot lately about the ark as a metaphor for an unlikely collection of people who are thrown together unexpectedly in close quarters during a particular event. The ark image seems to be everywhere I go. I mean, this church is an ark. It's an upside down ark. Ten days ago, I was in New Orleans, as you know. I was eating lunch at a restaurant with my son at a prominent corner in, street corner in the Garden District. And that corner was where all the floats in the Mardi Gras parade would make a right turn from Napoleon Avenue onto St. Charles Avenue. Grassy medians in both of those avenues were filling up all since probably earlier that morning, filling up with people anticipating the parade to come and wanting to get the perfect seat. They were reserving spots with coolers and folding chairs, and they even had step ladders, all tricked out for the occasion with wheels built onto them. All these eager onlookers seemed to me, as they went on for blocks and blocks, they seem to me like voyagers standing on the deck, deck, the decks of some cruise ship in the ocean, waiting for a pod of purple, yellow, and green whales to spout beads out of their watery blowholes. You never quite know what to expect during one of these ark experiences. But you're guaranteed to always get a slice of life. And I want to tell you, I saw lots of slices of life at the corner of Napoleon and St. Charles, some of which I wish I hadn't seen. As a kid, I used to ride solo on the Trailways bus down the Valley of Virginia to my grandparents' home. And it always seemed to me that an adventure was just about to break wide open. You know, buses like an ark. The back row contained, contained grisly culture rebels. Greased back hair, ne'er-do-wells smoking cigarettes and chewing tobacco. They flamboyantly, not all that surreptitiously actually, swigged from those flat-sided clear bottles encased in brown, plain brown paper. You know, when I got older and was in a fraternity in college, I learned that those were not just anything. That was the grain alcohol from the Virginia Alcohol Beverage Control Store that they had bought and snuck onto the bus. Inevitably, a large grandmotherly woman would plop down beside me in the aisle seat and then she would turn to the window and smother me as she was waving excitedly to her family on the sidewalk outside the window. And after an excited moment, the rogue Aunt B from Mayberry would lean back the other way as I gasped for air. 
seemed to me at those moments that the culture rebels on the back row were a safer set of companions than this grandmother, even though my mother said the rebels were a bad influence. I guess she was more interested in my morals than my safety. One of my favorite Flannery O'Connor short stories, well, most people's favorite Flannery O'Connor short story, tells of a mother and her son taking a ride on a city bus. The large mother regularly goes to the YMCA for weight-reducing classes. So this happens on one of those nights. And so her son, who is a recent college graduate, she gets him to go with her because she has great concerns now that integration has been reversed and our segregation has been reversed and the city bus is now integrated. She don't want to take that trip alone anymore. Her son reluctantly accompanies her, but he rebels by sitting across to her, sitting next to a black businessman. It's his rebellion against her overt racism. And at the next stop, there is a black woman who gets on with her young son. Ironically, and to our main character, the mother, horrifyingly, this black woman is wearing a hat that's exactly like the one that the elderly white woman is wearing. So there they are, two by two. Two sons, one black, one white. Two mothers, one black, one white. And the mothers are united under the same purple hat with one side that flips up and one side that flips down. And then as the foursome disembark at the Y, the white mother tries to give a penny to the black boy, which angers the little boy's mother and embarrasses the white son. And he gets mad and he says, why are you doing that? That mother rejected you and that was the whole colored race which will no longer take your condescending pennies. This tirade goes on and it ends with a reminder that her old world of false graciousness had gone away, just like all the people who did not survive the flood. You are not who you think you are, he fires out as a final retort thought about that and I thought about the ark and I thought about the two by two and I thought about the old false graciousness going away, drowning. And then I thought in the prayer of confession, what we're essentially doing is saying we are not who we think we are. We are not. Of course, there's another direction to take with the ark metaphor brings back a lot of great memories for me. It's of the time that uh, when my kids were little and they, uh, I used to keep their Sunday school and there was always the kids sing before between Sunday school and church. And we had a, uh, uh, someone that would lead it from the choir and we called him Mr. Music. And one of the kids' favorite songs, well, you know what it, how it goes. God said to Noah, 
There's going to be uh, floody, floody. So get those children out of the muddy, muddy children. Yes, you know it. You're not going to sing it. It's okay. I get it. All I can say is rise and shine and give God the glory. You know it even though you're not going to admit it. But even Mr. Music would probably have agreed, what has Noah got to do with us? I mean, it's some quasi-mythological story. There's a million flood stories that floated around the Middle East at the same time. So it's a destruction of the world a long, long time ago. And then there's this one perfect guy that God chooses to save a remnant of the earth and start all over again. I tend to prefer the retold version of the story where Noah is more human. He is disbelieving, shocked, busy with life. I've got no time for this. He steps back because God, what God is telling him is just really not rational. In fact, it might just be impossible. It would take an army of people to build an ark described the way it's described in the Bible. And you could never get all those animals to come compatibly into the ark and live together. But you know, that's a distraction. So never mind all that. Let's just talk about the wild beasts that came in two by two. You know, in most human-beast interactions, humans try our best to keep the beasts away or maybe penned up or dead. But here, God was going to save creation, all of creation. And that meant saving the wild beasts also. I think maybe the essence of 40 days of rainy days and nights that Mr. and Mrs. Noah and their kids spent on the ark could be described as a long, long time surrounded by stinky animals, many of which would have liked to have had the Noah family for lunch. And you know what? It's a real biblical oddity. All through the Old Testament, beasts are a metaphor for the threat to a person's very existence. Wild beasts that threaten the sheep of the young David, the beasts in Daniel's dreams, dragons and winged creatures and leopards and bears, all as symbols and metaphors of ex existential and moral threats. All symbols of the ultimate invulnerability chaos. The very chaos that undermines everything about life that makes us feel safe. How could you feel safe on an ark with all those animals? But in the Noah story, God builds vulnerability right into the story, into the essence of what the ark is into the essence of what salvation is on the ark. I think Noah's experience was, well, it was nothing like Jesus' 40 days and nights of facing the torment of Satan in an ocean of barrenness surrounded by wild beasts. 
You know, I don't really even know how vulnerable Jesus actually felt. He was God with us, after all. He was attended by angels. Maybe the wilderness for him was simply a shepherd's cold camp. No fire or tent or warm meal. Was Jesus' time in the wilderness solidarity with our own situations in life? Or was it symbolic? Mark really doesn't offer any clues. He's only got a couple of sentences on it. Does not expand what he means, what he thinks of it. And you know, in the ultimate, the end of the story, really, the truest wilderness experience for Jesus was not that one with Satan on the mountain. It's the one that comes at the end of Lent. The real wilderness experience for Jesus is the arrest and the trial and the torture and the crucifixion. And there, the mob of wild beasts is not lions and bears and tigers and coyotes. At the end, the mob of wild beasts will be human beings. Grandmothers who are normally gentle and kindly pious religious leaders, political autocrats, greasy-haired, flask-carrying culture rebels from the back row of the bus, even comfortable traditionalists who don't like change when it changes their status. I don't know, maybe we are the beasts that surrounded Christ. Maybe we are the chaos that we don't really want to confess. This is where everybody who doesn't like Presbyterianism walks out. But maybe we generate chaos in life. And maybe we do it because of fear that we don't want to admit. Maybe we're scared that the world is really an irrational place and you can't count on anything after all. Maybe the rain starts and we get on the ark only to find that our shipmates are the beasts of our own nightmares. Thoughtful theologians have claimed that all philosophy and religion is born out of a cry. A cry for help in the face of vulnerability that threatens to undermine our security or our existence. But you know, in the human condition, there is always risk. The knowledge that we are mortal, or perhaps what is worse, the knowledge that our loved ones are mortal, well, that's the biggest vulnerability. This is when chaos wraps its stormy fingers around us 
and we feel like we're losing our grip on the last safety line of the boat as it passes out into the night. You know, after 150 days of doubt and fear and flood and anxiety, what did God do? God made a covenant with all living things, everything. A promise, really. And you and I, we have the legacy of that promise. We are people that God has promised to never abandon, never to set adrift, whether we're surrounded by wild beasts or even when we become wild beasts. We are the people whom God, through grace, has saved. And the promise was fulfilled on that day that Christ Jesus was nailed to a cross. Our God abides. Amen.